Welcome to episode number 53 of the Ignite Physio podcast. This podcast inspires physiotherapists and other health professionals to continue learning and growing in their practice and throughout their career. We explore professional issues with a fresh lens and look inward, delving into topics that help to expand our capacity for growth. I'm Andrew. And I'm Maxie. Woot woot. Right on. Well, we we got everything sorted out. <laughs> Recording, we got coffee in hand. I've got a tea, actually. Oh, tea? Yeah, you know, I'm, yeah, no, I'm finding that coffee is just uh, too irritating. So I started drinking tea in the mornings and things, uh, things are, not like people need to know about my health, for God's sakes. Why am I an open book like that? Why do I do that? Talk to us. But honestly, honestly, I thought, I thought, oh, you know, it's going to be really hard to, you know, get out of the coffee sort of cycle because coffee is this, I associate coffee with revving up, right? You know, and so you have your coffee, you know, and you're ready yeah. to go, right? And I thought, I, I don't need to fall back. I'm having a tea. I don't need to fall back asleep, right? Yes. But actually, I went, I started drinking tea in the morning. Yeah. And I'm good. And so now pretty well, the only coffee I drink are lattes, right? So I have the milk with yes. it. Yes. Yeah, I can't do straight up coffee. I, I got to go. I, go. I can go for a plain latte, but... See, and I even bumped up from a from a from a tall to a grande today because last time you had the venti, and I was like, "Oh, man!" <laughs> you you want to know what? If I've got a venti, you know something's going on. <laughs> Good to know. That's when that's a that's a social cue. Ask me if I'm doing all right. Oh, that's right. <laughs> or things do you have on the go? Or it might just be you know. I wanted to treat myself. I've needed some soothing and I needed a latte, a big, big old latte. So anyway, there you go. Well, there now everyone knows our, our coffee or non-coffee habits. <laughs> yes. And mine is Dave, my tea, David's tea right now. I'm having a, I think it's called forever nuts right now. It's really good. Really enjoy it. And I have a tea schedule now too. Anyway, we won't get into that. Maybe we'll have a podcast around that. Maybe maybe for a later podcast. Maybe a later podcast. We'll continue this conversation on the next podcast, and I'll tell you all about my tea schedule. (laughs) That's right. So uh, last episode, we had Glenda on the show, and that was a great conversation that I thought, yeah, really insightful. I thought it was just, it was great to meet in person and and just uh, talk about burnout, right? And one of the things that really stuck with me from that conversation was something that Glenda said around the idea that we tend to carry. I don't know if it was a carry of the relationship or we carry the interaction with a person. And she broke that down, this idea of that we care, but then we also worry. And that, that caring is what really can wear us down and can also contribute to burnout over time. And so that's something that I've been you know, thinking about more and just reflecting on even in terms of my own clinical practice and catching myself where I care, but then I also worry about that patient. I, I, in a sense, I attach myself to their outcome, to the state that they're in. And it's amazing how much more challenging that is, and just from an energy standpoint. And so today I thought, you know, it'd be great to talk a little bit more about that. And that sort of just started making me think more about uh, compassion. And I've been starting to read a book by uh, Dr. Ronald Epstein called Attending Medicine, Mindfulness, and Humanity. And he has uh, this chapter in the book called The Shaky State of Compassion. <laughs> and so I actually jumped ahead to that chapter because I just thought that was such a great title for a chapter. And so I thought, you know, and often, you know, that's this, this, you know, when we talk about compassion, we just think, okay, well, I just got to be more compassionate, right? Or we talk about compassion fatigue, you know, we talk about these things. And, and so I thought there were some great quotes and I thought, you know what? Let's let's dive into that a little bit today because I feel like it's something that 
we can either feel guilty about in terms of feeling like we're not compassionate enough, or we feel like I have to guard myself from showing too much compassion because that's going to help me avoid burnout. You know, and I think there's a lot of misconceptions around compassion. And I think it's a really tricky area because I think it's, it's one of those things that we often are trying to navigate ourselves without a lot of input and outside perspective to help guide us with our patients. So how does that sound, Maxie? Sounds really good, Andrew. <laughs> you do, you've so, been doing a lot of thinking. I, I do. I, yeah, there's a lot of thinking going on. So I thought, you know, let's just let's just start at the beginning in terms of compassion. How do we define it? And I just did a quick search, Merriam-Webster, what is compassion? And in the book, they talk about three ingredients for compassion. So I thought, let's just go through that. And I know you've got a couple thoughts as well. You've attended some presentations on compassion. But Merriam-Webster defines compassion as the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress together with a desire to alleviate it. Very generic, right? But that is a starting point with that definition. Anything you want to add to that, Maxie? Yeah, like, yeah, I mean, from reading, because I'm Shelley Prosco, who is a, a physiotherapist from Alberta, out in central Alberta, uses yoga and, and pain science. And they've actually just written a book, her and Neil Pearson and some other authors written a book on yoga and science and pain care. And I've heard Shelley speak actually at the San Diego Pain Summit last year, actually. And it was a very enlightening presentation because she certainly, I think, I think intuitively we think we know what compassion is, right? Mm-hmm. We go, oh, I'd be more compassionate, be more compassionate. But their their compassion is a is is not just about this outward projection either. Like there, yeah. there's a there's a awareness that you have to have. And I don't want to go too deep into that because I'm not the compassion expert. But when you're talking about a definition, let's circle back around to this definition. Uh-huh. Why I mentioned Shelley is because right now I'm in her book chapter on compassion in yoga science, yoga and pain science. And the definition that let me see here. The definition, because there there are a few, there's one that's a more generic one. And what is compassion? So she says there's no agreed upon definition of compassion. Oh, well, look at that. So, but, but what you're saying about this person and their definition seems to jive, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So there's lots of interpretations. Extending kindness toward another, she says, is a simplistic definition of compassion. In the Oxford Handbook of Compassion Science, many of the leading compassion researchers present evidence that compassion can be described as an emotion, a motivation, a trait, an attitude, and can even include a behavioral component. The working definition most widely used throughout the handbook is taken from Getz et al., which states that compassion includes two components. The awareness of pain and suffering. So, like, that seems to tie into that sort of sympathetic, you know, you're aware of somebody else and their suffering and the desire and motivation to relieve the suffering. Interesting. Yeah. Cause in this book by uh, Dr. Epstein, he, he, he has three components. So I think two of those for sure are covered the noticing of another suffering. And then he goes on a resonating with their suffering in some way. And then that acting on behalf. I don't know. I think we'd have to talk to Shelly because my, what I would, what I would wonder about you're resonating with it. So is he saying you're feeling empathy? Is that a tag on empathy that you're resonating that you're, I don't know. I do not know if I agree with that because I may not, I may not have any, I may not have been through the experience that person's been through. Likely I haven't. Right. And that shouldn't, and that shouldn't have to be a precursor 
to being compassionate. 100%. Yeah. And what if, what if you're trying so hard to resonate with that person, right? That that is limiting your actual ability to be compassionate. Well, no, and and yeah, I agree. Like, and I, and I think he's getting at this idea that, and he points out, you can't experience the same thing that someone else is going through, right? So he gave this example. I think it's more about empathy that he's he's addressing there. But he's saying, you know, let's say he gave the example. He's like, you know, when I've talked to patients who have kidney stones and you say, oh, I've had a kidney stone too. He's like, it often falls flat because people, your experience of that kidney stone is going to be very different. And what they're not, they're looking for more so is for you to understand their experience as opposed to just knowing that you have a common experience. Right. But then are we not starting to talk about empathy? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yes. Yep. An yep. understanding of, of putting yourself in another person's shoes, that sort of resonance. I, yes. I may not have been, I may not know exactly your experience, but I am understanding you, right? Yes. I am understanding. Yeah. And there's lots of ways to convey that, right? Well, and I, and I think what was interesting, and I'd be curious to know what you think about this, Maxie, is he, sa- he says that research suggests that awareness of our inner states can help us recognize the inner states of others. Some of the same neural circuits are activated when we witness pain as when we experience our own. When we are distressed, we feel it first in the body. We do the same when taking the distress of others, mapping their experiences onto our own and feeling pain in response to theirs. And so, you know, he goes on to talk about recognizing that, but then also the importance of being mindful of what's going on in our body so that we aren't just taking that on. But there is a certain level of distress that we can feel when someone is in distress. Absolutely. And, and likely, and that's where, like we've talked about on it, I think (laughs) ad nauseum, I think (laughs) on this podcast, that ability to be aware of yourself, because if you're not aware of yourself, if you are picking up somebody else's distress and you are becoming distressed by their distress, you, you need to be the regulator, right? So you could be picking up their, maybe their distress, an actual mirroring, the mirror, quote unquote, mirror neuron phenomenon, right? And I'm not quite up to snuff on the literature on that. Some people were starting, some literature was starting to say, yeah, it's not as, you know, so I'm I'm not going to go, I'm not going to speak too much about the validity of, of that idea. But from like, we've talked about a lot in terms of sympathetic regulation, uh-huh. right? And people picking up on your social cues, nonverbal uh-huh. cues that creates social engagement or, or it can activate somebody's sympathetic arousal or it can, it could help them regulate. Right. And yes. so that we are the yeah. regulators. So absolutely. I think that we need to be aware of our own states and that's in life, right? That's not just yeah. with our patients, right? Yes. This is, a, and, and so then, so then it's about, then it's about self-care, right? Uh-huh. Then it also becomes about self-care. We aren't just doing this for, for other people. I mean, that amount of distress, like if that's what we're carrying, with us that's damaging to us that hurts us as humans right yeah and i think that uh, and and this this was i thought this was another really interesting quote is that this idea of resonating right because we were just sort of talking about it. he said when i resonate emotionally with another person's suffering i experience distress a discomfort within if i feel that i can do something to relieve the patient's distress quickly my own distress also dissipates but, but if it's not possible, if I lack the skills or if I'm going to take a long time, there's a natural human tendency to withdraw, to pull away in self-protection. Mindfulness here in observing and understanding and regulating my own emotional reactions so I can re- reliably sustain presence in the face of a patient's distress. Yeah, okay. 
Oh, lots going on there. Yeah. Oh my. Can you just read that again? <laughs> I got too excited. I got excited. I even forgot what I was going to say. You're just so excited. You're like, it just blanked out. I, 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 I did. I, I just literally blacked out there for a moment. Blanked. It went blanked. I'll, I'll back it up just a bit, but it, it says, because he talks about compassion is its own reward. And if it fills clinicians with a deep sense of purpose and well-being, then why is it in such short supply in healthcare? So that's really the question. He said, this has to do with the second of the three ingredients, which is this resonating. When I resonate emotionally with another person's suffering, I experience distress, a discomfort within. If I feel that I can do something to relieve the patient's distress quickly, my own distress also dissipates. But if it's not possible, if I lack the skills or if I'm going to take a long time, there's a natural human tendency to withdraw, to pull away in self-protection. So really the antidote here is mindfulness is observing, understanding, and regulating my own emotional reactions so I can reliably sustain presence in the face of a patient's distress and my own. Why is it so lacking in healthcare? I don't know that it's about resonance. That could be a part of it. It could also be a lack of understanding of what compassion is. That idea of just being in service to somebody, right? The intention behind it about what we're doing. And Shelley gets into that in her book chapter here, Joan Halifax, a Zen Buddhist monk who does a lot of work around compassion and that intention to serve, right? So I'm of service to you, but I'm not taking things on for you. So when he's saying, let's well, uh, lacking our, our, our and ability, compassion isn't, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm, nah, it doesn't hook me as much as that yeah. could be. The, if maybe for him it is. And, and we have to recognize that the context is that this is in the American system of medicine, right? So that, that there may also be. Yeah, not disagreeing, however, would like a deeper conversation about that. Yeah, and I think what I found was interesting in that quote was the idea that, and a recognition that there is distress when 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 someone is in distress, the compassion there is you're 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 having to interact with that distress in some ways and recognizing our own sense of self in that, and you know when you when you care when you are compassionate you know, you are holding some of that distress perhaps in your hand a little bit, right? Because you have to, you, because to, you know, not to, not from a sympathy standpoint, but from an empathy standpoint. And I think that idea of, okay, I need to be mindful here. I need to be present to what's going on. I, I like that idea of like, yes, there's distress when we engage in compassion to a certain degree, but that we, ha we, we don't stop there because if we, take on too much distress, we pull away because it's a self-protection thing, what we're talking about in terms of self-care. And then can we look at being mindful so that we can be present and regulate our own selves so that we aren't carrying the distress of others? And I think it 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 it's it's help it would be helpful to to kind of outside of the clinical interaction, because when you're in it really hard to regulate yourself, if that is your pattern, right? Yeah. Um, distract. Very, it's wonderful to be aware of it and, and to have some ways that you know that you can pull back and regulate yourself. And also though, I think outside of the clinic, we can put ourselves, could we not put ourselves through some, some exercises, right? Like, you know, you can, you can bring up, well, the last time that I, this happened to me, what, what did I feel in my body? Like, and you bring up a memory of it and you can get a sense of this is how I'm feeling, <laughs> right? Oh yeah. my gosh, right? And 
Hey, Andrew here. Just a quick break from the podcast as I wanted to let you know about an innovative web-based tool that I'm building that's going to help optimize your treatment approach and achieve better results with less stress. The reason I'm building this app is to help myself and other therapists more deeply understand our patients so that we can avoid the potential pitfalls that can jeopardize treatment outcomes. So much of what impacts treatment is hidden below the surface, and this tool will help adjust how you approach each patient based on who they are. Think of it as Outcome Measures 2.0. Make sure to check out the show notes for a link to sign up to get my latest updates. All right, back to the show. And what are the things I start thinking? What are the things I want to say? What are the actions I want to take, right? Being aware of the full gamut of it, mm-hmm. all of it, right? And then go, okay, pause. Okay, don't, don't send ourselves into a loop of distress. <laughs> pause, okay, pause, park it, slough it off and go, now, if I were grounded, if I'm regulating, actually, maybe don't slough it off. Maybe, okay, now I'm going to regulate. Yeah. Now I'm going to regulate. What would I do to regulate? And this, now I'm regulated. Now, how does that change what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I would say to this person, how I would respond to this person from this state? Because it's about the state that you're in. And I think, I think oftentimes, like, I mean, think about athletes. If, if the only time they're practicing is when they're in competition, right? So they go through things, right? And I think maybe, maybe it's about taking a bit of time to be with ourselves and just, and and not necessarily in relationship where the stakes are high all the time. Yeah, exactly. Right. The stakes are high and, but it's just going, okay, I just need to take some space for myself to explore this. Yes. So that I, it can be more meaningful when I go into practice, when I go into practice yeah. and also less stressful. Yeah. Well, and, and you've, and, and I like this idea, you know, with this, with being in a state, states are transient, like they, they change, right? So if you find yourself in a, not such a good state, <laughs> you can quickly change into a different state, right? And I think that there's this ebb of flow of states. And I think that to think that we're, you know, okay, I just want to be more compassionate that somehow I just put on my hat of compassion and this is now I'm in compassion state, (laughs) right? You know, I think that there is this nurturing that we need to do to be able to allow compassion to take place, right? Because I think, you know, because I think they they mentioned this in the book too, like they they referenced Joan Halifax. Joan Halifax, (laughs) you see? And I I liked what she had said uh, because he was quoting her saying that, for compassion to emerge, we have to create the right conditions. With the challenge is to create those conditions in which compassion is most likely to arise. And I like that, right? Because it's, it's that, that idea of recognizing that our state as a person, internally, externally, is, is constantly morphing and evolving. But we can, we can influence this. And I like this idea of, yeah, let's take ourselves out of those really high-stress states where we're going to go into reactive mode, right? Because that's really hard to move, pull out of that without practice. Now, okay, here we go. We're talking reactive mode. That takes me to another point that that, that sort of section, that, that the quote that you read took me to. He says, well, we withdraw. We withdraw. Yeah. I don't think that's the only reaction yeah. that we can have, right? Like, well, our human nature is to withdraw from that. Not necessarily, right? A human action be- could become to become more aggressive. If you're sympathetically activated... And you can be more aggressive. You can go into anger. You can go, that's not withdrawing, right? Withdrawal, withdrawal can certainly happen, but that might not be the first thing that happens, 
when yeah, you're in something. that, when you're yeah. in that place. So that's another thing. I think there's, there's more to it than that maybe. Yes. Right. But there's well, a number, but, but I think I the key like, is, is to how do you respond yeah. in those situations? And I would say that, I mean, I want to make sure that we're not giving him too hard of a time because I am just taking a quote out of an entire book. But, hey, he wrote it. <laughs> he wrote it. That's <laughs> it's right. out there. Exactly. You, listen, you don't have to. Are you resonating with maybe the distress that he would be feeling right now? I'm just, you know, trying to uh, embody compassion. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think that yeah, for sure. Our 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 state, we may have certain you know particular patterns that we default to in times. And I, but I think what is interesting is that 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 common element in terms of em, like that mental emotional exhaustion that happens with burnout, where you tend to disengage and you you tend to lack you know, caring. And there's, there's almost like, I'm just now going through the motions and yes, because it's, it's very protective because you're protecting yourself. So I think that that definitely there's, I, you know, and that initial reaction may be one of anger or it may not right to be self-protection, but there definitely is fix. Yeah. You know, you throw more stuff at them. There can be lots of, of, of reactions, but yes, the withdrawal is certainly a part of that. That's very self-protective. So yeah, so I think that the the state and I and I think what's interesting is also looking at the before and after we enter into our clinical re- interactions. Do you know what I mean? Like how what is our state like before we move into a place of interaction? What is my state after I've Do you know what I mean? Cuz I feel like there's those those bookends that are really important signals in terms of what is our emotional state, do you know what I mean? Like, because sometimes, you know, we can, we can, we can muster up our presence. Well, I don't know if we can muster it up, but we can, we can say, you know what, I got my job to do. I'm going to be, I'm going to be present, check with this patient, right? And we can sometimes maybe even ignore or maybe cover up a little bit about maybe the emotional state that we are in. And I find it interesting to look at what are those bookends of our experience, whether that's at the beginning of our clinical day or it's even just before a clinical interaction to say, okay, maybe these actually are some really useful or important signals to get a better sense of what is my state? (laughs) Well, yeah, absolutely. And this is kind of off, not on a tangent, but maybe it's, I know, (laughs) but maybe it's expanding it more. It's, it's not just about what is our state when we go into the clinic right? Is because we have other meaningful relationships in our lives that require us to be present, right? So this is a way of being, you know, in your life, right? To be aware of yourself and how you are responding to your partner, to your kids, to your friends, to your boss, to, you know, your colleagues, right? You know, and, and that they're, and that it, it's, it's, it's really about, we talked about, what was it, two podcasts ago about a practice, about the process, right? If you focus too much on the outcome yes. of it, I must be compassionate, or this is what I need to do to be compassionate. It's a process. We're human beings. We're constantly going through this, right? All of the time in the interactions that we have, right? And, and I think that when, maybe when we isolate it to uh-huh. clinical practice, yeah. that it makes it a skill or it makes it something that we, we restrict. We put on. We put on, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that 
I don't know, like maybe that people, some people might perceive that as pressure, right? <laughs> to be compassionate. Yeah, I, mean, gotta do it all the time. I gotta do this all the time. What? <laughs> it's seven hours. I have to do it <laughs> 24 hours. <laughs> well, we'll give you a break when you're sleeping, right? <laughs> you touch on something that's really uh, important is this idea of these transition moments between the different roles of what we do, you know, that transition of from our clinical day to the say that you know our family time or to you know interactions with others that are outside of a clinical space is that our how how do we transition ourselves from those times right and that's something that I'm I'm working I'm working on a 30 day challenge that by I think the time this pub, podcast is published will be on its way but one of the things is this idea of the week the week one challenge is to actually do a meditation at the end of your clinical day. And something I put together to help with transitioning from your clinical day and letting go, and but also recognizing the gratitude and that gratefulness of the interactions so that we can transition more effectively to the rest of our day, right? Because I think that sometimes we carry over this burden, the it's almost like, I don't know, the scatter effect of like, you know, interactions and even just, I think, just our own internal energy that can then make us less present and compromise in some ways are the importance that we need of the state we need to be in, in terms of our other interactions, right? So like I move on from my clinical day, I haven't really processed anything in terms of what that day is. Now I have to move into this interaction with my kids or with my spouse. And now all of a sudden, but I've still got like stuff that I'm still carrying in from that interaction. It makes it a lot harder to be in a good state in, a, in an empathetic state, in a compassionate state, when I haven't really helped myself clean up or clear up some of those things that happened from the day. Absolutely. And, and even, even being able to recognize that there still is residue when you, when you're leaving, you know what I mean? So you might like, sometimes it's, it's, it's hard to, to let go of some things immediately, right? We have all of pressures. We all have things upon us, right? That sometimes keep us up at night sometimes, you know? And so, so the practice of even like doing that sort of a meditation and it probably wouldn't, it's not this onerous thing. Like you're sitting in Lotus for, you know, an hour, right. It might be, it might be five minutes, right. Of literally just being with yourself to know when you are leaving, what state you are in, right. So that you can even be, for example, with your spouse, you know, darling, I'm still like really activated around this particular situation. I'm sorry. Like I'm, I can't, I I don't feel like I'm as present with you right now. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Nothing to do with you. It's, you know, it's I'm this residue. It's me, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's truly it's, it's residue. Yeah. It's residue. And, and I just can't seem to shake it. So yeah. I'm going to try, but just know that I'm kind of off in another world. Yeah. Cause it, it might take, it might take a bit of time to process that, you know, but, but even that recognition I think is really important. Cause I think that that residue, what ends up happening is we carry that over we don't allow ourselves to be present to that and to even let go of some of those things. We then carry that. We like, oh, we'll just sleep it off or I'll just work out to, you know, clear it, right? The next day, same thing, more residue builds up. And then by the end of the week, it's like you got all this stickiness on you, <laughs> right? You've got like the sticky residue all over you. And it's, and I think then it becomes, I think to me, that's some of the risk of that energy depletion 
and and just that fatigue that i mean and again whether it is compassion fatigue or however you want to frame it i think there is just it's like you sort of feel gummed up like you can't move freely like you're in a sticky suit <laughs> and imagine imagine okay so once again like it's bigger than just our clinical interactions and our professional self. Yeah, so you're yeah. gummed up. <laughs> yeah. That's a good visual. You're gummed up, you know, and yeah. you're trying to interact with other people in your life. Yeah. You know what I mean? You're either tired and or angry and or distant and withdrawn. Worried, um, yeah. And then the people in your life are going, hey, yo, yo. Right. And then, and then, then, then there's this, if you're not aware of what's happening, then it becomes an argument. It becomes, there's tension and, 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 and distance and, and it starts snowballing. Right. So then that's more pressure on you. Right. Those relationships start being affected by it. And, you know, wow. If we could just, if we could just say, yeah, I'm, I'm struggling right uh-huh. now with some stuff, honey, or with, you know, you don't have to maybe tell your kids that, but, you know, <laughs> but it, but it comes out though, right? It, it come it comes out because I know that if I'm in that place, guess what? I've got a shorter fuse. I'm not going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to withdraw a little bit because I just don't feel like I have anything to give there. Right. And something that I wanted to just add to that is, you know, I think that's sometimes what we can think is that interacting with patients is always a burden, right? And I think that there's so much of this opportunity, like, and this sense of gratitude that if we can foster and pay attention to in that, that we we have really a gift in terms of the interaction that we can have with patients. But what happens is that if we end up having all this extra residue, you know, those interactions become more weighty and weighted, weighed us down. But then also it makes it a lot more difficult for those interactions and those relationships out of side of work to actually be life-giving because we're not even present in those interactions, right? And so then what ends up happening is you just create this whole feedback loop where you're not connecting and resonating and being in a, in a, in a, you know, in a, in a state of presence outside of work, which then makes it harder to be present at work, which makes it harder to be present in a place of compassion. Do you know what I mean? And then just sort of the stickiness now all of a sudden just builds up that much, you know, much more quickly. And, and I think that it just, yeah, it just becomes a lot harder to then have that be a positive feedback loop as opposed to this negative feedback loop. Yeah. And when you're saying stickiness builds up, like oh, I get the real, like a visual of like, really like that. And it becomes a buffer and like, yeah. we can't get through it. Right. You know? And so there's this withdrawal, right. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Withdrawal. Sometimes we need to withdraw, right? Sometimes withdrawal is a place where it's like, I'm withdrawing. And when you're aware that you're withdrawing, like it's protective, right? And sometimes we we need that, but when it becomes maladaptive, you know, when when we're actually losing connection and the regulation of other people, because for example, your, your spouse could be somebody who could help you regulate, (laughs) right? You know, they could be that grounded, that grounded person for you, right? And help you regulate. But if you're not aware that you even need regulation, you need to be more present and yeah, regulate yourself, regulate your nervous system, then how is that supposed to happen, right? Well, exactly, right? And I think that, again, this doesn't have to be a big 
It doesn't have to be this big thing that you have to do to help reset and clean up the stickiness, right? I think that it's like what we talked about is like, it's the process. It's, it's not, it's, it's like, what are the things that you can do on a daily basis? And I think to me, it's even about, can you start to put a little bit of a wedge in between the clinical interaction, you know, portion of your day, create a little wedge to pause, to reset, to let go of like, to clean up the stickiness, that residue so that you can then transition into the interactions outside of work and doing that on a daily basis. Now all of a sudden it's like you're, 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 you've got the sort of the engine cleaning fluid working through your motor. The motor's still running, you're still moving, but there's that cleaning fluid that's helping to clean out some of the gunk. And if you do that a little bit each day, every time the motor runs, you're going to, you're going to end up finding that, that transition becomes easier. And that, that, I hate to use the word skill, but I think that that practice, right? That practice of transitioning becomes easier. Yeah. And I, and I, and I really like the idea of the practice of it. I was reading once again about, about athletes, about really elite athletes, right? And I can't remember who was talking about guys like athletes like Sidney Crosby, who are, you know, the cream of the cream, right? And what makes them so so good, right? We all, we always think it's talent. We always think it's, you know, and this person was saying, I don't know if it was his trainer or who it was, but he said, you want to know what makes Sidney Crosby great? What makes Sidney Crosby great is that he he does what he needs to do. He goes through his workouts, even when he doesn't want to, even when it's boring, even when, even when, and we always think that athletes like that, oh God, they must love, you know, being in pain, the physical pain of, you know, and that they're, they're these, you know, I don't know, transcendent beings or something in that way. But, but it's like, it's like, no, they don't want the, it's the, it's the boring stuff, but they do it because they know that it's the process and sticking with that process and that practice that is going to eventually make them, you know, it's going to translate into their work, into yeah. what they do. So there, be yeah. like Sydney. <laughs> That's the bottom line. <laughs> Be like Sydney. <laughs> Be like McDavid. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I, so I, I mean, really the takeaway, I mean, you know, from, from our conversation today for, for clinicians is see if you can start to develop a practice of resetting at the end of a clinical day and transitioning, recognizing that compassion really is a state and that those states can fluctuate, but we can help to put ourselves in a place where compassion can come more easily, more freely, and more deeply in our, in our clinical practice. But recognizing that compassion is not just for clinical practice. It's, it's something that we want to embody and embrace across our life. And we need to look at the ways that we can help make that happen across our life and not just and isolating it to and one. With ourselves. And, this, and with ourselves. It's, it's, yeah. you, I don't think you can be compassionate I'm going to make a statement. I don't think you'd be compassionate with other people unless really that you can have that compassion towards yourself and be aware of that towards yourself. So that's, that could be another conversation. (laughs) (laughs) That could be absolutely another uh, podcast episode right there. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in everybody and great conversation as always, Maxie, and look forward to the next podcast episode. All right. See you next time. Well, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's uh, great having you on the show today. 
Now, if you've been enjoying the new show, I'd love for you to leave a review on iTunes as this just helps more people find out about the podcast and we'd love to to get your feedback. And if you want to check out the show notes from the podcast, just go to ignitephysio.ca forward slash podcasts. And if there's any topics that you want us to cover, just shoot us an email at hello at ignitephysio.ca and we'll make sure to get back in touch with you and, and see what we can do there. So anyways, thanks for joining us on the show today. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.